So today we end our series that we have been doing all summer long on the Apostles' Creed. We've been looking at the Apostles' Creed, this story that was written down from the early church. We could call it a story. We can call it a statement of faith. Lots of different ways to express what it is. It was a way to summarize faith. It was a way to teach people. It served as a guide for faithful reading, a, help us, a way to help us read the scripture. And so we've talked about it in many different ways. We've looked at each of the phrases, but we've also talked about what it means for us and the implications of it, how it can help us read our Bible better, how it can re help us from reading our Bible wrongly. We also remembered that this isn't just the creed for Fruitland Covenant Church, but it's a creed used by churches not only throughout our country, but around the world. A creed used by churches throughout time. And so as we say these words, as we express these words, the words that join us with them, as we summarize what it is that we believe. And so those words are in your bulletin there. But we also recognize that the creed in some sense tells a story. It begins with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, which is exactly where the Bible end, begins. With God creating heaven and earth. And then it ends with this phrase that we just are looking at for today, and the life everlasting, which takes us to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so it helps us to tell this story. It helps us to know, in some sense, where things are headed. We won't look at the final phrase of the creed, which is simply, amen, but which is simply means, so be it, which is this proclamation. Of, but we have questions about, how does the story end? When you start a book, when you start a TV series, when you start a movie, one of the things you're wondering about is, where is this story going? How's it going to end? And it can be incredibly frustrating. Imagine getting a book and you're reading through and then you come and then the final chapter has been ripped out. And you wonder how it ends. Or I think back to a Thanksgiving when I was in high school and I was staying with a friend of mine and he was a big Navy fan and I was a big Army fan and over Thanksgiving weekend was the Army-Navy football game. And we were in the midst of the game and Navy was trouncing Army, but then the power went out. And so we didn't know how the game ended because this was 1983. So this was kind of pretty, there, were, there was no internet to look on. There was no other way to know how the game ended. Now I was convinced that Army had come back from a 30 point deficit. In the midst of what was going on, well, sad to say we found out a day or two later that's not what happened. But, but there was this anxiety that was there as we were watching this game and then the power went out. We were sitting in the dark and wondering, how did it end? And it's the same way in some sense with the story of the Bible. We're, we're reading this story of the Bible, this incredible story as we read it as a story that begins with God creating a good creation in heaven and earth and taking human beings as his image and placing them there and calling them to reign and to rule and to represent him. And then the downfalls of people all along the way and the constant faithfulness of God to his people. And then finally sending his son, Jesus. Finally, sending his son, Jesus, to make all things right. And he dies on a cross and then is raised from the dead. And this, this beginning of new creation. And there's still a sense of, but what's going to happen? How's it going to end? And we come to that in the book of Revelation. And we like the idea of happily ever after, at least for me. When I watch movies or read books, I like things with a happy ending. 
I like where the good guys win. I like where things are set right. But the question as we read is, in the Bible, what does happily ever after look like? And as I've said many times, the Bible doesn't give us all of the answers to that. We want to know lots of things, but the Bible's a little bit obscure, but it does tell us certain things. We talked last week about the resurrection of our bodies, that we will be physical beings, we will be changed, we will be transformed, we will be undecaying, imperishable, raised in glory. But the question is then, what are we going to do with these resurrected bodies? Where are they going to live? What are they going to do? And that's where we come to this final line of the creed, the life everlasting. And sometimes we get a little confused because we have that language in our culture in the church of going to heaven when we die. And that eternal life is simply, eternal means it just goes on and on. Or maybe we just think if eternal life is just this life, but better. I know I've been at countless funerals where people will be talking about the deceased one and usually where, whatever they're doing is simply the hobby they had in this life, only better. If they were a fisherman, heaven is like a, just a really big lake with never-ending fish. Or if they play golf, then it's just this endless golf course with ever-changing things and beautiful greens and you always get a hole in one or the putts are always perfect, whatever. There's always this picture of heaven is just kind of like this earth only a little better. But it's something a little different than that. So we have to begin as we look at the end of the story to start at the beginning. And at the beginning of the story, as I said, in the book of Genesis, God makes heaven and earth. And heaven, the way I, language I like to use that I've borrowed and I've learned along the way is it's God's space. And then earth is our space. And then he creates a garden, Eden, which is an overlap between those two. It's a temple space where heaven and earth meet. And in that he places people. And in that temple space, God and people live together. And then we see in the book of Revelation that it's a picture of exactly that, of these two things coming together. So Revelation chapter 21, the first verse, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And you notice it doesn't say there's just heaven, but there's a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. And this was not a new idea that John, the writer of Revelation, came up with. It shows up if you go back and read the prophet Isaiah, chapter 65 in particular. Talks about this idea of a new creation. And we think new, new has different meanings. In, the, in this case, we use new in the sense of not like I bought a new pair of pants or I got a new phone. But new in the sense of maybe you've changed the way you eat. You've changed your eating patterns and your sleeping patterns and you wake up and you say, I'm a new person. And it's this transformation of who we are. And so Michael Bird says it this way. He says, the earth is transfigured into a heavenly plane of existence and the dividing line between heaven and earth is obliterated. Heaven becomes earthly and earth becomes heavenly. So there's this fundamental change that it's new. And so what does it mean that it's new? The old powers have passed away. So it says there's no longer any sea. And for some of us who've grown up near the water, we think, what? No more water? 
No more sea. But in the book of Revelation, the sea has been this portrayal, this picture of the forces of chaos, the forces of evil. And so when it says there's a new heaven and a new earth and the sea has passed away, it means those old forces of chaos, the old forces of evil are gone. And in fact, if we go back, what comes before chapter 21 in Revelation? Chapter 20, right? And it goes on and it says, one of the last verses in chapter 20, is that then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire, the lake of fire. So death and Hades, these enemies, these last enemies of God are destroyed. And so when it says a new heaven and a new earth, it's saying these things are no more. So as God is giving us this picture and saying, what is the life everlasting? Whatever it looks like, there are no more forces of evil. They instead have been cast into the lake of fire and aren't going to bother us anymore. We learned about our resurrection bodies that they are immortal. Why? Because death, death itself, this enemy has been cast into the lake of fire. And John goes on with this picture of the new heaven and the new earth. And he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, God's city, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so there's this great picture of what comes. It's like a marriage. It's like a wedding. It's this incredible thing where we celebrate, but it's also the idea that heaven and earth aren't opposites. But instead, what happens in a wedding? Two things that are made for each other come together. Genesis chapter one and two, the beginning of the Bible, God creates a man and that says, it's what? Not good for man to be alone. And he creates a partner, one suitable for him to be with him. And so just as male and female are the image of God in Genesis 1, and they come together to represent what things are supposed to be like, it's so in the same way in the book of Revelation. Heaven and earth are coming together. But it gets better. So not only do we have a new heaven and a new earth, where the old order of things has passed away, where chaos is gone, where death is gone, where heaven and earth, these two things that were made for each other are coming together in this wonderful celebration. But the best part comes in verse three. And it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Whatever life everlasting looks like, whatever this new creation looks like, the greatest thing about it is God will be with us. It's been the promise throughout the Bible. This anticipation, the sense of what people long for most. They're in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're with God walking in the cool of the day. And then what's part of the curse? They're cast out of the garden, out of the presence of God. God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. And one of the parts of the promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And when God is, calls his people out of slavery, he makes a tabernacle, a tent to put in their midst. What's the tabernacle represent? God's presence with his people. When they build the city Jerusalem, what do they put in the city? A temple. And the temple represents what? The presence of God in the midst of them. Jesus comes to live among and he says he's a new temple. And one of the titles given to Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the longing of each and every person, the longing of each and every one of us 
isn't for the ultimate golf course. It isn't for the ultimate fishing trip. The deepest longing inside each and every one of us is to be with God, to see him face to face. And that's what life everlasting looks like. This is the big hope that eternal life isn't simply really long life, but it's a different kind of quality. The writer of the Gospel of John talks about, he says, this is eternal life to know Jesus the Son. And so what we're looking at is when we say that eternal life or life everlasting, the highlight of it is that we're with God and in his presence. And there's this incredible piece of just that. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. In other words, pay attention. Look at what this is. God's dwelling place is now among the people. God isn't far off. He isn't far away. We're not looking for him. We're not wondering about it. We're not sensing that. We're not experiencing that feeling that we sometimes feel like, is God care about what's going on? That feeling of, is God absent? That feeling of the dark night of the soul, but instead it's this constant sense of God is here with me in ways more solid, more real, more deep than anything we experience in this life. And we're being invited to imagine what that looks like. And it goes on and we read a little bit more of the city. We'll come back to what's going on. But it says this interesting thing. We have a city, but in the midst of the city, we have a garden. Because the beginning of the Bible begins with what? A garden. But now we have a city. But in the midst of the city is a river and the trees of life. And we have a city which it talks about the walls of the city. And the walls are what this sense of security that whatever life everlasting looks like, it's a place of security. But it's also a place where the gates are open because there's no need to close the gates because the enemies have all been defeated. There's no more darkness. And the city is also a place where what? People live together. It's a sense of community. We're not there simply by ourselves. And in the midst of this city, it says, there's the river, the, this is beginning of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So there's this wonderful picture that comes from Ezekiel chapter 47, that from God's throne, life is flowing. The river of the water of life is flowing and it's a sense of there's never ending. And this tree, did you catch that? It says, on each side stood the tree of life. Where did we hear about the tree of life first? Way back in the garden. The tree of life is there and it's not cut off like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden so they couldn't get to the tree of life. But the tree of life is now there for everyone to access. But it says it bears 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. You don't have to wait till August or September or whatever month or the fruit. It's there all the time. It's this sense of ceaseless provision. God doesn't say, well, here's the tree of life. Wait a couple months and come back and you can get some fruit from it. It's not in season yet. 
But in the new creation, the new heaven and earth, the tree of life is always in season. I wish my fruit trees were like that. Like imagine if you had an apple tree or a cherry tree or a peach tree or pear tree, whatever kind of tree, and you just like any time of year you could go out and there would be fresh fruit on it. And that's what God is saying in this new heaven, new earth, the tree of life is there and we can go any time we want. But then the question I always get is like, but what are we going to do for all eternity? Eternity is a really long time. We always have the little cartoon like Family Circus or the other cartoons and they're sitting around and they're strumming harps or doing whatever. It's like, how many of you want to play a harp for eternity? No. How many of you want to play a harp for 10 minutes? I don't know. But, but there's a sense of sometimes like, what are we going to be doing? Revolution, Revelation 22.5 says this. It says, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And you think, wait a minute. I thought God reigned forever and ever. But it doesn't say that because it's been talking and it's saying they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. He's talking about us, the redeemed, restored people of God what will we be doing for all of eternity? We will be reigning. You think, what does that mean? Goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Remember I said all our good theology. If you don't know Genesis 1 through 3, the rest of the Bible isn't going to make sense. Because God places his image, male and female, in the garden. And then he tells them to what? To reign, to rule, to cultivate, to rule. In other words, what will we be doing? we'll be doing exactly what God meant for Adam and Eve to do until they rebelled. We'll be creating, we'll be restoring, we'll be doing amazing things. I don't know what that looks like exactly. But we'll be doing amazing things. We'll be doing exactly what people were called to do. We may be gardening, we may be building, we may be creating, we may be painting, we may be exploring the universe. But we'll be doing what it was that God called us to do in the beginning. To rule over it, to care for the creation. And he's now restored and creating this new thing. I know we want more answers than that. We want to know more about what it looks like. Well, but, but Pastor Kyle, that sounds good for like 50 years or so. But like, won't I get bored after 100? I mean, I don't know. I think God who makes all things new will keep us from ever growing tired of what he invites us to do. Of cultivating, of doing things, of wondering. And in a sense, it's this restoration of who we were meant to be. Which is in part sometimes reflected in the life of a child. If you can think back to childhood and how sometimes as a child you could sit and you could just watch a bug crawl across a flower for 30 or 40 minutes. Now I'm like, get out of there. Get but we could sit and watch or we still enjoy that. 
I mean, how many of us can go down to the beach and simply watch the sun go down? Or the waves crash across the beach? Or we can go out in the woods and we can just listen to the birds sing? Does it grow old? No. And that's what God invites us. God's inviting us to care for and cultivate that. And there may be new, new forms of life. Like I said, an opportunity. We live in this universe that is huge to explore, to learn, to cultivate, to grow. So that's the life everlasting one. This is the promise. That's where the story's leading to. This new heaven, new earth, free of sin, free of sorrow, free of death, free of chaos, in which we live as the people that God created us to be. And then he invites us to live now into that. So we say, well, okay, that's in the future. But I want to give us two implications, two ways we can apply that truth to now. One is that we live in anticipation of that, that we begin to live into that. And as we see this picture of the new heaven and the new earth, we see it and we bear witness to God's purposes right now. And one of the things that we see is justice that's going on and justice meaning things are the way they're supposed to be. And so part of our purpose right now is to begin to live into that sense of justice, this sense of restoration and healing so that the nations will walk by it and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. This is the gates will never be shut for there will be no more night. There's this nothing impure will ever enter it. And so justice is living the way God means things to be. We're going to be starting a new series next week on the book of Romans. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, there's this whole word righteousness. But righteousness, we're going to talk back about that, is the same word, comes from the same root as the word justice. Justice and righteousness, and they go together. And sometimes we want to separate them. We think of righteousness as just being right. But justice is this overall picture of God doing and the world working the way that God intended it to. And so if the new creation is that way, is it's a place where justice reigns, then it's an invitation for us to live into that. It's also the new creation is this place of beauty. I mean, we see, we didn't read the description earlier, but there's this picture of the new city and it's this city with emeralds and jewels and gold and pearl and all these amazing things. In other words, it's a place of wonder and beauty and this picture of that river flowing down and the trees on either side and bringing life to the nations. It's a place of beauty. In other words, we in this life are called to cultivate beauty in whatever form that looks like. It may be creating art. It may be in song. It may be in poetry. But we are called to be a people of beauty. The third part of that, of living into that now is evangelism. Just this call to say, that we are invited, if this city is the place where the people who have given their lives to Jesus live, then don't we want as many people as possible to experience that life? To know that life, because it's, there was the distinction between those where it says, those who are victorious will inherit all this, but the others will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And so there's this contrast between the two and it's this invitation to say, we're inviting people to live into this and to say, there's this hope of something new. And that's the last thing or the other thing that I want us to think about is, it's a reminder of hope for us. 
The book of Revelation was written to a church in the midst of persecution, amidst of trial, midst of challenges. And the book of Revelation has been read, interpreted in many different ways. And there's all kinds of crazy symbolism and pictures and what in the world's going on in it. But at the center of it is a picture of hope. At the center of it is the basic story, God wins. And at the center of it is this hope that we can cling to. And it's a hope that can give to us because when we're honest with ourselves, some days are hard. Some days are harder than others. And there's all kinds of things we can look at the violence in the world. We can look at forest fires. We can look at droughts, famines, human trafficking, all these things. And it can lead us to a sense of despair. And what the creed calls us back to is to say, but remember the story ends happily ever after. The story ends with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It reminds us of God's victory to redeem his people and to redeem the world in which we live. And so when we confess that creed, when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and we end with, and in the life everlasting, it's a call to hope for all of us. To hope in the midst of whatever is going on, that God will make all things right. That there will come a time when we will live in God's presence. There will be no clouds, nothing standing between us and him, but we will live in his presence. The tree of life will be there. The river of life will be flowing. We will be with his saints redeemed. We'll enjoy a world that is free from pain and sorrow. And so what it's an encouragement for us to do is when life gets hard to hang on to that hope. A certain hope, a real hope, a true hope, not just a, I hope that happens, but a certain promise and a guarantee from God that this is what he will do. Here again is words that he says. Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So let us remember those words, people of God. Let us remember those words, church, that these are trustworthy and true, that God is making all things new. And in that, we can put our hope, not just now, but for all of eternity. Amen.